Okay, how about this for a cold open? And this is the meta cold open because I'm talking about the cold open. We were cut about 20 seconds ago into it now. So here's the meta. How about this for a cold open? Uh, I'm going to introduce Jason by saying uh, how basically we have been planning to actually really collaborate on the subject for a really long time, and we haven't. And so that's uh, that's the sort of meta cold open, I think. It's a sad. Yeah. It's a sad story of non cooperation on yeah. the project. It yeah, dates back to our time as colleagues. Right? That's right. Or that's was... right. All right. So so uh, yeah. I mean, you and I were colleagues at the American Interest early on. Just by way of introduction, Jason Willick, uh, currently of the Wall Street Journal, uh, who joined Shadi. I don't know if you know uh, the American Interest. What year was that, Jason? Do you remember? I graduated in 2015, and it was that summer, so 2015. So comes highly recommended to us from from some guy called Frank Fukuyama at Stanford. Uh, oh, so Fukuyama recommended you? Well, he was my. I took his course at Stanford. Yeah, wow. and I, I was looking that. for a job, and um, it was a great first job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you had other opportunities, and we're really lucky to have had you. And uh, you came to work with uh, Walter Mead at the time, who was still like doing Via Media at at at, uh, at the American Interest. But in any case, I mean, I just wanted to to preface this whole conversation. Like, I I'd say we've had a lot of smart kids come through uh, the American Interest. Jason was like off the charts, like really just off the charts, just you know, writing ability, arguments. Uh, just a great colleague. Oh, you're so, raising expectations so really pretty high here. High, high expectations. So you're, but, he's yeah. basically a boy genius is what you're oh, saying. Oh, come on. He's a man genius now. He's <laughs> grown Demir, up a bit. <laughs> Demir was, was running the operation. It was excellent. Walter was a great mentor. It was a great um, institution. And it, t- was, it was a great time. It really was. I think I was like one of the, the best times uh, there. Uh, but, you know, I mean, just again, not to, not to blow so much smoke up Jason's ass, but, but the truth is, is like, you know, um, you, you get sort of young people coming in and, and, you know, you, you sort of work with them. Jason always pushed back, always pushed back on stuff. But like in the end, you know, it was, it was a very good collaborative thing. And I think we all grew for it. But like Jason would always argue and argue so, I don't know, persuasively and thoroughly on these sorts of things that I don't know. It was just. Just stood let's out from to, the let's other group. Let's try to argue a bit here. I think yeah. we should get some arguments going. I think we can probably do that. But anyway, to, to sort of unmeta the meta cold open, I don't know when, Jason, it was that we started talking about this stuff and you actually clued me in on this one book that, like, I don't know, I've, I've, I've recommended it so many times since then, and that's uh, Inventing the People by Morgan, who, which you had read at Stanford, I guess. Was it in Frank's class? or It was in a different class. It was in a different class. But anyway, I mean, Shadi, I, you know, in our reading group, I, I made us read a little bit of that Edmund yes. Morgan and stuff like that. And, and it was, I think it was around the, the, the crux of the Morgan argument that you and I started talking about this idea to be a cool thing to, you know, at least sort of start exploring this question of representation in some sort of, I don't know, like extended essay or like a book project or something. But we, I feel like we've been talking about that ever since, right? Yes. But as with all of these things, we were busy and then we haven't collaborated yet. That's right. That's right. So I don't know, <laughs> this, this, this a, will be the live collaboration. Exactly. Exactly. So Jason, do you want to kind of lay out some of these ideas? Where are you at right now? And I know that some of this relates to debates around the filibuster and how Biden is not someone who wanted, who wanted or wants to do away with the filibuster. And now we have these bigger questions of representation that he's going to have to deal with, basically. But, you know, say, say what you will. Yeah, I mean, I think right now in the intellectual, progressive, liberal circles, there are ideas percolating that basically America is too counter-majoritarian. It's not representative because of... I mean, this is almost any time I read an academic, uh, liberal academic talking about democracy, whether it's um, Ziblatt and the people who wrote How Democracies Die. There's a couple of guys at Harvard, but they're talking about, you know, the Senate is unrepresentative because each state gets two senators. It's not proportionate. The House is gerrymandered. The judiciary is appointed by the president who is elected through the Electoral College and confirmed by the Senate. The Electoral College is tilted towards sparsely populated states. So there's this really comprehensive theory that I feel like has a lot of, you know, it started in the in the think tanks and in the academy, but now it's you really see it adopted in the wider press that America's constitutional system is not representative. I think that that is a too simplistic way of putting it, but we can we can talk about the details later. But I think, you know, the first way you're going to see that manifest is in the force of the arguments to get rid of the filibuster. The Senate is too counter-majoritarian already. Why do we make a 60-vote threshold? They're 
going for Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, and you know already many many formerly moderate Democratic members have changed their position on it. And I I might add myself to the ledger that I feel tempted, and I was trying to catch up on some of the debates, read a couple articles in in the Wall Street Journal on this issue, and I have to say. As someone who hasn't followed the debate very closely, and my frustration at the fact that Republicans are going to be as they've been for many years now, which is blocking anything Democrats do and preventing any kind of ideal bipartisan cooperation. And if you want to get big things done and and your party is in power, you start to think to yourself, well, Democrats have been duly elected. Um, they won and elections should have consequences. And why shouldn't we be able to realize our agenda? Here, here's just another even way to, to qualify, right? Is, is, cause I think there's such a rich terrain. There's so many ways we can go at it. But there, there's, there's also the, I guess the British tradition, right? Where, where, you know, if you're in opposition, I mean, that, that the, the governing coalition, even it's a, you know, a, because it's first past the post, uh, and it's different from other European sort of coalition systems, still the governing majority has a lot of power. And yeah, I mean, maybe react to that, like, apart from, from the fact that, that, uh, you know, we have a tradition of this kind of, uh, different system, like, what, what's the, what's the, what's the danger and downside of it, of well, unblocking this? The danger is that, I mean, you hear Elizabeth Warren saying, in a democracy, the majority rules. That reminds me of, Victor Orban and even Netanyahu to some extent. I mean, that's a that or, or Islamist parties, the Muslim Brotherhood. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Shadi's Shadi's very consistent in his support for majoritarianism. <laughs> no, but I mean, I mean, like majoritarianism is a principled is a principled view. I think the question of where you come down on representation comes uh, has to do with uh, what you think about majoritarianism. Do you think a repre- representative is for reflecting exactly what people want, or is it for reflecting something else? Is it um, for reflecting other characteristics of the country or an institutional structure that better serves the country? But if you believe that representation is for doing what the majority wants, which in its most extreme form would be a plebiscite on every uh, piece of legislation and then then the then these counter majoritarian features don't make any sense um so what was the question demir what's the downside to the well so i mean the downside you know and this is a question to both of you really because it's one of the things that that i think also for shadi um i don't i don't fully also know to jason's point like you know at what point um does it become problematic, right? I mean, is legitimacy for you, Shadi, for example, completely tied to just pure majoritarianism? Is that the the only and and, and most legitimate form? Because I mean, I think my 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 question is, you know, what's the downside of of uh, creating a more majority a more majoritarian and less blocking system than we have now? Like, arguably, you'll get something like perhaps you have in Britain where the opposition sits and, and screams. But is powerless, uh, and you know the government is near all powerful in in doing stuff. And then you you know at elections that sort of switches. Uh, but then the question is also maybe to you, Shadi, and you guys take it in what order you want. But the question is one of legitimacy because one of the things that that representation does do to a certain extent is what Jason's getting at is it tries to um, capture elements of society. You know, I mean, quite frankly, the 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 Senate uh, problem. Uh, in and of itself is one of uh, of a large compromise that was made to actually be able to form our current union right between uh city uh city and, and country small states and big states um so i don't know uh okay so what, a what couple thoughts yeah, here so the the norm around the filibuster is that it wouldn't be used excessively so even if it was a good norm to have previously now it's being abused that would be the argument i guess so if it's outlasted its original use as something you would you would resort to sparingly, then the question is, is it really sustainable in this form where it's used as this perpetual blocking mechanism that is used nonstop? And um, I mean, is, is that sustainable over the longer period? And I mean, our system evolves. So if the if the spirit of the filibuster is being abused or not used in the way it was originally intended, then do we have to sort of reassess our position on it? 
Um, that said, I mean, I didn't finish the, like the, the the full exposition of why I'm torn. On the other hand, I, I do worry about doing away with the filibuster because I don't think Democrats will keep on winning the presidency. So when I think in a more long-term, rational, considered way, I see the dangers inherent in this argument because what I think is really frightening is Republicans winning the presidency and having the Senate and the Supreme Court in the future and just destroy, just going, because I mean, Republicans are always more aggressive than Democrats when it comes to the use of raw power. So I think that what we as Democrats or liberals have to do is anticipate the future scenario of a Republican party that is completely unmoored from any kind of restraint. And that to me is the most compelling argument for keeping the filibuster. Absolutely. I mean, and for what it's worth, we have a 50-50 Senate, 50-50, and we're having a debate over the filibuster, and it seems real, the possibility of it being narrowed in some way or, or destroyed. If Democrats had performed as well as they had hoped and gotten 54 seats, we wouldn't even be having this debate. It would be gone, in my opinion. So for what it's worth, I mean, I do think we're, we're on a path. We've been narrowing it for judicial nominations. We've been uh, narrowing it for cabinet appointments. It, it's it's going to go when one party has the raw power to do so, I think. Okay, uh, so you're saying that even if Democrats don't do away with it now, next time Republicans have the power, they will get rid of the filibuster. Well, I don't. So they didn't in 2016 when they had the Senate. 2017, after the 2016 elections, they controlled all three branches. Oh, I sound like Tommy Tuberville who said the House, the Senate, and the presidency were the three branches. <laughs> they controlled the the legislature and the executive. They did not get rid of the filibuster. I think Republicans would need more votes to do it because they frankly have more Murkowskis, Romneys, Collinses who are institutionalists. I think the Democrats need, you know, they have 50 votes. They're close to doing something. If they had 52, 53 votes, forget it. But um, so I think you know, the Democrats are probably the party that's more likely to get rid of the filibuster. They're the ones who got rid of it for uh, lower court Supreme Court, uh, lower court judges in, I believe, 2013 with Harry Reid. Sorry. Uh, well, I mean, for for the lay men or, or, or lay women, I suppose. Uh, and I'm just thinking that, you know, uh, not to make this podcast about my parents, but I don't think my parents necessarily have a great background on what the filibuster is and how it works. Maybe just like very quickly. If you had to explain, I mean, what I, I actually don't know ex the full history of it and how it really came about in the first place, but maybe lay that out a little bit for us. Sure. I mean, for all intents and purposes, the legislative filibuster means that for legislation other than budget related legislation, you need basically 60 votes because 41 people can stop the consideration of legislation. They can. You need 60 votes to override the their continuing debate and to stop the debate and to vote. Um, you used to need it for judges, too. 60 votes used to be the threshold for judges. Harry Reid got rid of it. Now you can confirm judges, and indeed President Trump's and the Senate did with 51 votes. Uh, then it was nuked for Supreme Court justices when Democrats filibustered Gorsuch. So now you can confirm a Supreme Court justice with 51 votes. You can still pass a budget and spending bills like the House and Senate just did with the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package with 51 votes. But legislation, say H.R. 1, the voting expansion bill, um, the and which does many other things as well, which we could discuss, but most climate legislation, immigration reform, um, infrastructure. Need 60. Needs, because need, it, can't be, it, it can't be pushed through through the budget reconciliation process. Right. Democrats tried to put the $15 minimum wage as something that is part of the budget reconciliation process. Uh, the parliamentarian overruled them, but they didn't have enough votes to overrule the parliamentarian. So for generally speaking, and this is when the pressure to get rid of the filibuster is going to heat up, is when Democrats want to pass H.R. 1, something like H.R. 1, which they're saying is essential to democracy and it's also essential to them winning in the future i don't yeah i mean may well, maybe but see i mean <laughs> we should get into that but you know again just walk me through then this because I, mean, I think that lays it out really nicely 
what would be the costs if we get into a situation where bills are a lot easier to both pass and overturn? Now, I understand, actually, I, I in many ways, I, I feel like the appointment of judges is a higher hurdle and should have been actually kept in place rather than bills. You know, if you have a simple majority to pass legislation, if you want to raise the minimum wage, yeah, look, I know, then then Republicans who think that this is really bad for the economy, it's very hard to row that back. Like, you can't, that's a very unpopular thing to do that. And I get why that's a consideration. But why, on like purely philosophical grounds, shouldn't we say that for passing simple legislation, majoritarianism, simple majoritarianism, is not a, is not the worst thing in the world, especially because we have a, a deeply polarized society that does tend to pivot back and forth in, in recent years, you know, with some regularity. Well, it reflects the American preference for, we don't call it the American government. We elected a new government. We say we elected a new president. We maybe elected a new House majority or Senate majority. We have many different parts of the government. So as you said, in Britain, you elect a new government, you repeal la, uh agendas passed by the previous government i think so it obviously creates stability i mean there's obviously you can move left in a democratic administration and right in a republican administration but not to the same extent uh because you need to compromise with the minority party unless you have 60 votes which is hard to imagine happening but it happened in 2009 59 votes for the um for the democrats but so anyway it's it's a it creates stability but look the filibuster and look, opponents of the filibuster say, and, you know, I'm not that invested in it because, like I said, I think it's gone eventually. But uh, they say, we already have, we don't have a unicameral legislature like Great Britain. We already have two houses which represent, one represents the states, one represents the people. We have a very powerful judiciary. We have an executive. There's already checks. You don't need, so that's fine. I, I prefer a more stable uh, Senate because I think the, the Senate turning into the House uh, would make us more of a flipping back and forth. Um, and, you know, we, that's probably good in some areas and bad in other areas. But um, I think the bigger, you know, the bigger question is, is I, you know, I think the filibuster is an interesting question because it's the first manifestation we're seeing of this majoritarian ideology. And it's not going to end with getting rid of the filibuster. It, it's going to be adding states um, it's going to be, um, you know, you're already seeing in HR one, it contains certain ideas about redistricting and how to make the house, uh, redistrict. It led to, you know, probably president Obama doing things by executive order because he felt that even though Republicans had a house majority, uh, you know, that didn't really represent the the majority of the country. And so, so it's gonna, it's, it's, it's a change in thinking. And I think, Matt Continetti had a column once how it also implies, you know, a change in the structure of the House. Why should the leadership have more of a say than the rank and file? That in and of itself is not perfectly representative. The only thing I'd say about the Obama and the executive order, the executive order orderification of, of the executive, though, right, is partly it's a reaction to the fact that that it's been so impossible to pass anything. And that's I mean, it's also not a healthy necessarily development. I just say that that potentially it's a reaction to some of these frustrations of of constant blockage and which, again, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, you're you're, you're much more enmeshed in this, but it, it's it's it is the product of of also polarization. Like we had a more, a better functioning system when the parties were less far apart and you could have, you know, members who didn't toe the party line as much. And so you had the blue dogs and you had the sort of the, 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 so you could bring, build coalitions basically. Exactly. And, you know, one of the arguments, you know, as people blast the Senate, frankly, the, the way that the arguments against the filibuster are going with Wyoming, why does it get the same representation? you know, and it has two Republicans and it's the smallest state. Those are also arguments against the Senate itself. I mean, the Senate is grossly not representative of people. It's not at all intended to be. And in fact, you know, the Constitution puts in no state shall be uh, deprived of its equal suffrage in the Senate without its consent. So in other words, you need a three quarters vote to amend the Constitution. You cannot, unless a state consents, change the structure of the Senate, unless every state consents. So um, so let's focus on that for a moment, on the disproportionality of the Senate. Um, and that's an argument that Matt Iglesias makes a lot. Let's focus less on um, the filibuster and, and focus more on the basic, how, how the Senate is constructed, basically. And just to read something from uh, Gerald Seib's piece on, on the filibuster, and I didn't know that the numbers were this stark. He says, similarly today, 
the ten least populous. <laughs> today, <laughs> today, the ten least populous states, which have twenty Senate seats among them, have only two point eight percent of the nation's population. That is remarkable to me. Well, but also. Read what else he said, which is that this is the same as it's been for 50 years. People are just right. complaining about it now. So There's maybe actually, we're realizing now that it, like, so far. No, I mean, we, the Senate has always been, some, some people who are crusading against the Senate are acting as if it's new that our states are of different sizes. The states have always <laughs> been of grossly different sizes. And as Jerry Ibe shows by several measures, 50 years ago, it was just as disproportionate as it so was today. So what's wrong with coming to our senses well, now? Well, no, look, what's happened is that the parties have polarized along uh, geographic lines. And the, the Democrats in, ur- in urban states perform better and the Republicans perform better in rural states and suburban states. So the, the Senate's skew toward rural states is now interpreted as giving Republicans an advantage when it was never that before and it was never intended to, to do that. It's intended to um, represent states rather than people. But the point is, the Senate was always equally skewed. Now it feels like it matters because it's um, because Democrats feel disadvantaged in it. Although I would point out, Rhode Island, Vermont, Delaware, the president's state from Delaware. I mean, these are some of the smallest states too. It's actually not true that Republicans dominate uh, only the smallest states. Um, I think if you actually do the math, it's middle-sized states like Missouri where Republicans kind of get an advantage. But the largest states are Florida. Uh, among the five largest states are Florida and Texas, which are Republican states and they're large. So it's not like Republicans are just dominating these but tiny a, states. Putting aside who benefits, though, from from the standpoint of fairness and voting equity, I don't know what the right term is, but forget about the past. Just from the rubric of fairness, how does it make sense? I know, I know obviously the history of states being a part of a compromise, but again, if we're just looking at representation – how is this just or fair? Well, I think this gets to the question of legitimacy. You know, Demir, um, Demir read from this quote uh, in one of your last podcasts. I'm, of course, a listener to every podcast. <laughs> and the, you know, you need to set up a system that creates legitimacy. And it's, and um, the way that we created legitimacy, the only way that we could was through a Senate. Uh, to give states autonomy. And, you know, some people want to boulderize that and they want, they want to turn us into, um, they think that legitimacy would be just fine if we sort of basically eliminate, uh, federalism for our, our system. But that's like, that's like a core part of our constitution. Really, this representation question is a question of keeping legitimacy. And so yeah, no, no, that's right. Look, the, the interesting thing for me is, is as always in these sorts of things is I, What's striking about America is how much of an ongoing experiment it is, you know? I mean, we've talked about this before, Shadi, and it's, it's partly about these like legitimating myths and, and narratives about stuff. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's striking. You talk to people on the left. They have a, a vision that, that like all it takes for America is a, is basically a very simplistic set of things we say about like human dignity and equality and that that's enough to bind the country together. And I always wonder about that. You know, I mean, I'm always surprised how far the social compact actually goes in this country. Coming from Europe, I, I expect it to snap and it never seems to. And that's, you know, a source of kind of general admiration and hope for this country that in fact it's a lot more durable than not. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I think it's, 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 also important to tend to some of these legitimacy questions, right? And it, and it's not like the question of, and this is something we should get into as well. The question of geographic representation is, uh, like something new that's come up. It's, it's one of those things that, that has plagued democracies for a very long time. And in fact, has plagued the left for a very long time across advanced democracies. This idea, um, that, um, uh, basically, you know, as since the rise of the Industrial Revolution, uh, left-leaning parties have found their constituencies in cities around factories, and they've been geographically concentrated. And that's a real problem for any sort of uh, representational system that has to take geography into account, unless you're just voting at large. You know that everything's in an at-large vote, which again, I mean, is an open question to me. I mean, this is what I was sort of asking before: Is there a legitimacy problem 
about saying that every vote for any country is an at-large vote, you know? And that's not the only question, quite frankly, because you can actually figure out how to structure your elections differently. I mean, I'm pulling a lot of this stuff from this book that Jason and I have talked about before. Um, I haven't finished reading. It's called uh, Why Cities Lose. What was the guy's name? Jonathan Rodden. Jonathan Rodden came out about like two years ago or something like that. It's, it's, it's really good. It talks about this exact problem. But it's, it's um, you know, I mean, there's many ways to skin this cat some of them are almost impossible to do in this country for all those sorts of reasons. You know, Shadi, you say like, you know, why is it a bad thing that we're coming to our senses right now? I think it's just really hard to amend these things. But it's, it also always strikes me about the United States in particular that a lot of the legitimacy or at least a lot of the idea of America is tied to the quasi-religious sort of uh, level of respect we accord the Constitution, you know? So – you know, but then why are perceptions of legitimacy relatively low now? So you would think that these compromises are still in place, yet we're already losing faith. So it's not actually it's not actually performing well, the purpose it's meant to, which is, as you say, to provide a strong foundation of legitimacy. Well, let me I mean, Republicans also, it's interesting because Democrats are totally convinced that the constitutional system is rigged against them. It's counter-majoritarian. It's suppressing them. Republicans are totally convinced of the same thing because for, for different reasons. I mean, it has to do with the administrative state, right? They say things like the EPA or executive agencies who elected Tony Fauci, who's, you know, now more popular among Democrats than Republicans, presumably, or Robert Mueller, you know, figures who are in the executive branch who are not elected. But they're who, appointed by elected representatives. They are, but how long has Fauci been in there for? 40 years? I mean, they're... Um, <laughs> I don't know, actually. They're, they're, they're experts. They're experts. They're highly educated lawyers or experts or bureaucrats. And so this is part of the populism, right? Populism, some people say, how can you be a populist you're, you know, Trump won 46 to Hillary's 48%. The populist means the majority and majoritarian. Well, re- conservative voters feel that lots of people who actually exercise power in the government, but also in other institutions, who elected Mark Zuckerberg to be speech police of Facebook, they feel that other institutions, which are not uh, democratic at all, are exercising power over their lives. And I think a lot of what we're seeing is a clash between both sides feeling that they are not represented. So what would the alternative to the administrative state be? I mean, obviously, I'm familiar with the Republican critique of of whatever, the administrative state, the deep state, the wide state, so on and so forth, experts. But, I mean, ultimately, to run a very complex government that is involved in different spheres of life, I mean, it's unclear to me what the alternative to having Fauci would be. I mean... Presumably, there would have to be someone in that position to to run. I mean, you have to run the NIH, you have to run the CDC, the FDA, and so on, right? I mean, what I don't I don't really get how it works otherwise. Well, you definitely do need to staff a government, but of course, the administrative state arose. I mean, Woodrow Wilson, um, who is an an early champion. I mean, it was the view that people couldn't really govern themselves according to the process the Constitution describes. They really need experts, this sort of fourth kind of branch of government to guide them. I'm not saying we need to abolish the administrative state. I'm just saying that, you know, that's another counter-majoritarian trend. Experts have more sway. And as and whether those are in public institutions like the NIH or whether they're or the Department of Justice or whether they're in private institutions that are increasingly talking about, you know, social capitalism, uh, environment, um, you know, socially responsible capitalism, which is basically politicized capitalism. And um, as long as you have hedge fund managers, you know, investing based on progressive ideas, there's a lot of sources of power that Republicans feel are counter-majoritarian and that they're underrepresented. Um but on just the political question of geographic representation that Demir raised, I mean, Israel is going into its fourth elections, I believe, in the coming weeks. So proportional representation, and and, they, and they're the extreme example of proportional representation. Because they're just it's, one at large district, basically. Right. Yeah. They're one at large district, you vote for a party. Then no party gets a majority of seats in the 120-seat Knesset, but you try to get 60 seats cobbled together a coalition. That's proved unstable. I mean, First past the post, our system of having two parties 
where you're represented according to a district uh, gives you a majority, gives, is more likely to deliver a stable majority. And, you know, Demir and I were talking about this book, Inventing the People. I mean, if you look at the origins of representation, the origins, you know, going back to the medieval period and, um, and the early modern period, you basically had people in certain regions uh, appointing lawyers for their interests who would go to the king and go to the monarchy and advocate for their interests as a lawyer. I mean, we say a lawyer represents us. By the way, you know, represent, the word represent means to represent, present something a second time. So the lawyers would, you know, advocate for those people's interests. And so it was sort of inherently, as it first came to exist, tied to geography because you had you know, the notables in a certain area having an advocate for them and the notables in another area. And this would, um, and this is, you know, one of the first ways that we had a diffusion of power in politics as opposed to just one one sovereign. So geography seems important. I mean, I'm not sure that you can just get rid of geography and have everybody in the United States vote for a party. By the way, this did exist in the early United States where states, you could have states Instead of drawing districts among them, a state could say, we're going to have an at-large election for Democrats and Republicans and give a sh- you know, the share of our seats to Democrats and Republicans based on the number of votes that they got. But you know, it is, as it evolved in real life, it was tied to a given place. The, the, the thing, Shadi, that I think you know, would be interesting to push you on is that, I mean, again, a couple of times we've talked about your, your – your your happiness with the fact that we have a stable two-party system. And that's impossible without two things being uh, the case. I think presidential uh, system as opposed to parliamentarian and and uh, single member uh, first past the post, I think, is the other part that, that sort of – I'm not sure actually what a presidential system with, with um, – what you call it? Uh, a proportional representation would look like. I, I actually uh, – Right. I, I mean you would have the president elected by Congress, which is what the – you know, the rioters wanted to have happen on January 6th. <laughs> I mean, I, I kid somewhat, but, but part of, part of what was going on there was a miss, was Trump's lie that the Congress chooses the president so his congressman can make him the president. Right, right, right. Well, Demir, so your question gets at, I think, a more fundamental issue. And I'm sort of just thinking about this in real time right now, since I'm not like very invested in one answer or another. And again, I'm torn. Which is, it, it depends to what extent we view the U.S. as a success story. If you're, if you see America as a success, you'll be less willing to um, mess around with an effective mix of things. I mean that that's been there for um, several hundred years. You don't want to you don't want to break something. What is that saying? You don't want to break something. Omelets and eggs. That. No, no, you don't want to. If it ain't broken, don't fix it. Don't, don't. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So if we're doing pretty good and we've survived to this point, and we have one of the world's most successful democracies, if not the most successful, it is a risky proposition to suggest messing with the basic foundation, with the basic structure. It could be better, and I think progressives naturally are inclined to think that the past can always be improved upon. But there is an inherent risk that we try to improve upon this system that we currently have with with the Senate playing its current role and that things actually end up getting worse. So it's a kind of maybe high risk, high reward kind of situation. But considering, considering that America is special, if you take that premise, you may not want to mess with that. So I think that is really at the heart of this debate is that a growing number of progressives in this country don't see America as something special to be conserved. Yeah, sure. It, it really comes down to the question, for me anyway, the question of 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 legitimacy of like, and and whether we're actually seeing uh, a flowing out of legitimacy from the system somehow. If that's true, and I mean, you know, your point about Republicans feeling like they're being disenfranchised by the administrative state versus the the calls of Democrats that uh, uh, railing against counter-majoritarian institutions, I, you know, I'm I'm I 
of course, we're all then tempted to say, well, this one has more value than the other. But we can even sideline the question of value and say that something's going on here that that legitimacy is is in crisis, right? But then the question becomes is how do we how do we address this legitimacy? You know, what's striking about I went back and, and reread in preparation for this, Jason, the the first chapter of uh, uh, Morgan. No, the 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 uh, Why Cities uh, Lose, lose uh, book, and and the interesting case that he makes there is like that that most. The most compelling part of the book is he says that most of the changes that Democrats want right now, including gerrymandering fixes through nonpartisan boards that would be able to do this, actually may well end up being a wash. I, and he makes, I think, a pretty, pretty compelling argument for that. That, yeah, of course, you know, in some edge cases, it leads to absurdities and things that perhaps undermine the faith in the whole system. But it's not clear that Republicans won't benefit as much as Democrats from some of this stuff. And that it gets back to this question of geographic representation and like, what, what does it mean? I was telling Jason this earlier. I, I was on a call with, with, uh, someone who I won't mention. It's like a, a Prominent, uh, you know, uh, political scientist, secret in town, secret, a secret scientist, a secret scientist, and and but he's an older guy, and we were talking about, you know, just basically this sort of question of representation, and I was just saying, look, I mean, I think technology and all these things are pushing these new demands for a certain kind of more authentic and legitimate representation among young people in particular, but it's driving all sorts of dysfunction. And he just threw up his hands and said, like, ah, you know, whatever. Like, I, I, I think we can get back to the older forms of representation and just sort of like get back to the way things were. Like, you know, just it was it was a mixture of disgust and sort of what are the older forms of representation? Well, one that doesn't demand this kind of legitimate authentic kind of like who speaks for me sort of stuff, you know? So what's his objection to who speaks for me? Well, I mean, just going back to, I think, a, a more simple constitutionalism. Mind, mind you, this is a Democrat, and I think that's all I'll say on who this is. But like, <laughs> but, uh, but in general, it's just sort of like a frustration with a lot of this sort of tinkering stuff about this sort of stuff that we need to step away from this idea of like what is an authentic and true representation and sort of rely more on, on these sorts of, uh, I don't know what. I mean, uh, I remember... Yeah. Yeah, I mean the demand for more true representation is sort of a a constant throughout history since we invented representation people wanted it to be more faithful to who who they actually are and I remember early on in the Trump phenomenon in the primaries at the American Interest our colleague Walter Russell Mead said Trump offers a different kind of representation to people he lives how they want to live and says things that they wish they could say. So there's all sorts of dimensions to to representation but um the, the more authentic version, I think, is right. And you see it on both sides. You know, a feeling, I'm not represented. I need to be more authentically represented. And, and just going back to Demir's point about, um, cities and drawing lines and drawing boundaries for geographic districts. I mean, that's true. Democrats talk about gerrymandering all the time. Their problem is not gerrymandering. Their problem is that their majorities that they have built are super concentrated in urban areas. So no matter how you draw it, because you're drawing it physically on a map, you are going to draw highly Democratic districts in your cities and Republicans are more spread out and that's going to advantage them. So there's no, that's why they basically want proportional representation. And you see, you know, it's all, it's unsaid, but it's basically a demand that, you know, the percentage of votes that goes to our party is the number of seats that our party should have. And again, that's how it would happen in Israel. But it's not how it happens in the United States, and and um, that's that's based on this uh, mis misunderstanding of of district drawing. And and Shadi, I mean, and here's again to push you on this is like, do you think that an at large system is a good idea? Is that sufficiently legitimate? Especially because you talk a lot about this idea of minimal democracy, right? And 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 so does minimal democracy end up being? That it's, you know, basically the most legitimate form. And again, when we talk about legitimate demands of legitimate representation, whatever that means. But, you know, I mean, we're talking about intuitions here and about like modern evolving intuitions, as Jason was saying. So do you, do you, do you think that, that like, uh, that there's something inherently more legitimate? And then again, to push you, I, I, I tried to do this earlier. I'll do it again. Uh, the implication of that, of that is proportional representation. And the implication of that is not like monolithic two-party system, which, which you know, the implication of uh, party lists is multi-party democracy. So again, I know, I, I feel like I'm ambushing you a little bit yeah, here, especially the, face, especially the faces well, you're making, but like... <laughs> <laughs> well, I would just, I just... Go ahead, Jason. No, I would just say a big, a big question about this multi-party democracy question is, do you think 
that if we had multi-party democracy, then everybody would find a more authentic representation. You know, those blue-collar Democrats who are not super socially liberal but want stronger unions, you know, they, they would have their party and the Trump nationalist populists would have their, their party, the equivalent to UKIP, and the mainstream Republicans would have a something equivalent to the Tory party. Or do you think that basically that's going to tear us apart because we're just going to create new factions, maybe ethnic factions? It's going to be more divisive or is it going to be more unifying? And that's an open question. Okay, so um, I'll say a couple things. On democratic minimalism, the way that I would describe its implications here is that I'm fine with whatever the democratic outcome is. That's what a true minimalist would say. So whatever the American people decide through their representatives currently, I will respect whatever they choose. So if they choose to stay with what they have, that is legitimate. If they say, no, we want to try something different and experiment a little bit, I will respect that as well. And that's why I don't like the Electoral College, but I respect it and I think it's legitimate because it is the current outcome of our system. It is just the, it is what it is. Um, and until it's undone or changed, it is the legitimate way that we choose our presidents in this country. So we have no choice but to respect it. It is itself an outcome of a democratic process. So when people say the electoral college is anti-democratic, they're talking, they're using this word anti-democratic in a broader sense. It is democratic insofar as it's a result of a democratic process, if that makes sense. So in that, at some basic level, I'm agnostic on a lot of these questions. I have my own personal preferences, but I don't feel very strongly about them as long as whatever we have is the, is the outcome of our very complex process. That, I mean, in terms of my own preferences, if I was being a little bit flippant, I would say, I do, um, I would say, do you, I have a fantasy. And my, uh, that's a weird way to start yeah, a sentence. Here we but, go. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, one of my fantasies is that I would be, okay, this is clearly not going in the right direction. I would say one of my fantasies is that I would be on my phone. Yeah. And that there would be some app. <laughs> yeah. It's like a dating app, except yeah. for voting. Yeah. For, yeah. yeah. So that um, anything in DC, and it could be done by ward or district or whatever it is. I don't really know how local government works. I don't really care, which is counterintuitive. Because that you want this democracy, want but this, you don't care about it. Yeah, yeah, kind of. But that um, if there was something in my local area, I would get a notification that would say, Shadi, it is time to vote on this local district thing in your area of D.C. that would affect your home or your zoning process or your parking and that you would be able to vote and everyone who lives in that ward would get a notification and then they could choose. There's something really appealing about that. But as I've said before to Demir, I think it's nice in theory, but I think it would actually, it's more likely to be bad in practice because we don't know what the unintended consequences are. I don't trust my fellow Washington denizens. I mean, I don't know. What do they want? What if they would like fuck with, not that I have a car, but if I did, would they fuck with my parking? Would they try to take it away from me? I don't know what they would do to me if if we had majority rule on the ward level. So I think that a lot of us Americans, we hear about this direct democracy idea of e-democracy like they have in Estonia or whatever in smaller countries. And it sounds very compelling because it makes us feel that we would have a say in the things that really affect us in our daily lives. I just, but I'm, as someone who knows that these, these grand designs don't necessarily lead us to where we want to go. What, like, and once we experience them, we start to doubt the wisdom of the crowds, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what we're talking about with cities versus rural areas, because you're talking about technology and the polarization of our parties along urban versus rural lines is related to the rise of new types of technology that concentrate in rural areas and the way that, oh, sorry, urban areas and the way that urban economies in New York and, and San Francisco create uh, and draw in sort of a democratic constituency while the people outside in eastern parts of California and upstate New York are 
are Republicans. I would just say about the um, the geography. I saw somebody making fun today of uh, somebody testifying against D.C. statehood. And he oh, was, yeah, I saw that, too. I thought it, the clip that I saw was embarrassing. He was from the Heritage Foundation, right? It was like one of the dumbest things I've ever heard, but maybe I'm missing something well, here. Well, I'll just say, so I think he was being made fun of because he said, well, people in D.C. are already represented because people see their yard signs, or that, at least that's how it was paraphrased. <laughs> no, no, but it was like the Congress people on their way to the Capitol, as they're driving to the Capitol, they see yard well, signs. Well, I would just say, I mean, I didn't watch the actual clip, so I don't know if he mangled the point or, or whatever, but I would say at the early Republic, there's this book called The Politics of Size by Rosemary Zagari, and she talks about the question of capital placement within a state was a hotly disputed question. This was before we had modern kinds of transportation. But if you live near the Capitol, you actually could get your grievances addressed more easily. You could walk to the Capitol to petition. You could contact your congressman more easily or your state representatives. So in big states, where the Capitol was had a lot to do with how represented people feel. So I don't, it's not it's not totally crazy that um, that geography, I mean, it's it's been diminished in importance with modern transportation when it didn't take hours to to go tens of miles to your capital but uh, or when it did but uh, I don't I don't think that's totally crazy I don't think the connection to geography while it while it seems to us irrelevant I don't think it's it's totally irrelevant okay you just did a very smart version of maybe what he intended to say <laughs> that sounds a, I don't know if I agree but that's a lot more compelling so so here here's here's the interesting thing to me right because on that point, on that very narrow point, it also just goes to show though how like affective the whole concept of representation is. It used to be, you know, in 19th century Tocquevillian times when we genuinely were a self-governing polity where these sorts of things really mattered and you, you know, like you, you petitioned and stuff like that. But look at Shadi over there. And I'm, I'm, I'm pointing at you, Shadi, because both <laughs> of us, in fact, you remember when we had, um, uh, uh, your, your friend who was the mayor of Charlottesville and he was talking about, yeah. about, about basically, you know, uh, the governance, the governing of a, you know, a medium sized city in a, in an important, you know, uh, East Coast state. And, um, you know, I mean, I think I, we even confessed to it at the time, but certainly afterwards, I, I've always marveled at the fact of like how completely detached I am from that level of governance. And you were just sort of alluding to it even today about just now about, you know, local, local sort of stuff. So, so what's striking about like this disaffection about representation today is that it's, you know, I mean, people do their civic duty and maybe do a little bit of research ahead of the November elections and, you know, vote, but you see it in the, in the figures for all like, non-presidential elections, how, how much lower, uh, participation is. In fact, American participation is still, I think, pretty low for advanced democracies. So it's this affective thing about like who speaks for me. And it ties so much to this, like, to me personally, somewhat irritating moment about like, you know, as a Muslim American, like I speak authentically for myself. And it's that kind of affectation about like authenticity and speaking for that actually has very little to do with this idea of petitioning your representative to get stuff done because most people don't do that. They do their civic duty by voting for a president and that's it. And so a lot of this stuff that's in the culture war right now seems to be bubbling up from this like weird ferment of, you know, whatever the hell it is that's not anything more than well, that. Well, maybe I should check my privilege then and just say that um, I think that educated elites don't really – they have the luxury to not care about local governance – Maybe, you know, if we had kids, I don't think any of us have kids unless there's someone who's unaccounted for. But um, Jason Mason, we don't know. He's married yeah. and he's moved to the suburbs, but yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, so none of us have kids yet, but maybe, you know, once we would have kids, we would care more about um, local issues simply because it would affect the schooling of our children and, and things of that nature. But I will say that I've thought so little about local government and have very little idea of how it actually works. So when we did have Michael Signer on, the, the former mayor of Charlottesville, the way he was discussing the passions that are unleashed in city council meetings was remarkable to me because it would never occur to me to go to a city hearing on like a zoning issue. I just don't care enough because I don't need to care. Other people may need to care. And that's, that is, I think, a product of privilege in some way. But I very rarely hear educated elites talking intelligently about local government. 
And maybe that's just a kind because um, so you're a foreign policy guy, also. That's yeah, also I'm a foreign po- policy person. A lot of my friends are international, so they might not understand how the American system works on the local level, like me, I guess. Um, and um, I don't know. I think that maybe also the fact that I'm originally from the Middle East, there is this kind of um, idea that politics is conducted on the national level. And it doesn't come naturally to me to think of politics as a local. When people say all politics is local, I'm aware of that saying. I've never fully understood it. Well, you're right. I mean, and America is the biggest republic um, that, well, India is probably a bigger democracy than the United States. But it goes back to the classical insight about can democracy work on a large scale? And that, and that's why I bristle at these people who I think Madison got it totally wrong and the framers got it totally wrong because, you know, they set up a way for Republican government to work on a on a large scale. And one thing I wanted to go back to when Demir mentioned identity politics, basically, I think that that's tied to these demands to increasing representation. I talked about how Trump was uh, seen as a tribune of a certain kind of, of people. We have people now saying, you know, why aren't there people in government who look like me? It should be proportionate to how I look. And in fact, you know, in Israel, when you do have multi-party systems, you do often get basically ethnic parties. You have Russian parties, you have, you know, Haredi, ultra-Orthodox parties, and you have people demanding that they be represented by people who look like them. And and Gordon Wood talks about how in the early republic, early anti-federalists basically said, how can, you know, cobblers be represented by aristocrats? And so I think this general trend that we're seeing on both on both sides towards being represented more authentically is, you know, at once a uh, healthy manifestation of democracy and also a deeply um, a, something that that can fracture us if we don't control it with the with the right institutions. That's a very good point, and it's surprising to me that opponents of identity politics don't emphasize the question of representation more. That if if a de- if a democracy on a broader level wants to be representative, it can't work if it's just about the person who looks like us is the person that we vote for. There's no way that that's sustainable in a democracy. If you want to have fellow feeling, a sense of shared Americanness, it has to be um, there, there has it has to be cross cutting beyond whatever your particular ethnic or religious group is. And if we think that someone, so if if I'm Muslim. And I can't conceive of a non-Muslim person representing me authentically. Democracy doesn't work. Precisely, Shadi. And I mean, honestly, this this is the other thing that I mean. Now, just in the course of conversations, this was part of what like was driving our conversation early on on this sort of stuff. Quite frankly, is like because people assume, I think, blindly. You know, we talk a lot about first principles here. I think one of the first like assumptions about authentic representation is that like what is authenticity and i know authenticity when i see it it's someone like me who gets me as a you know like represented as a muslim american as a you know uh by woman of color or whatever like as a it's like authentic understanding of lived experience gives you the only legitimacy to represent someone i think that is mad and it's madness and it's it cuts at the core of this stuff and it's because of like in general, not Americans as a whole. And, you know, going back, I think, you know, what this uh, older political scientist, Democrat gentleman was getting at is like, we need to get back to this sense of representation of like American representation, not this kind of other representation. Um, I think it's really important. You know, one of the things I, I, I'd always like throw it at, at people at, at work. And I, I think Jason and I talked about it all uh, as well early on in this sort of stuff is I've always thought, just very narrowly from the Balkans, looking at that sort of stuff. The real tragedy of the Balkans and the tragedy of the West dealing with the Balkans as well was one of thinking that uh, this sort of stuff is actually pretty easy. You know, like Yugoslavia existed and it was actually quite multi-ethnic, but it existed under this sort of, you know, meh, medium repressive communist regime that created a, a Yugoslav identity over it. When it fractured, uh, you know, Bosnia fractured along ethnic lines, was put together by the West. And, you know, this assumption that like ethnic parties weren't a problem, you know, and that like some sort of Bosnian thing would like cobble it together. One of the reasons Croatia worked, quite frankly, is because uh, um, the uh, 
Serbian minority was actually pushed out. And the, one of those sort of really impish questions I've always had in an ethnic, in an ethnically based nation state, how large can your minority be as an ethnic minority and still allow for a functioning democracy if your parties end up breaking on ethnic lines? I don't know. I think that number without like much research is somewhere around 20% that if you have like an ethnic block that chooses to be blocking at like 20% or something like that, you can't have a functioning democracy. I don't know. I've never done the research to actually try and quantify that sort of thing. But I think it's, it gets at the key question here that if you don't, if you're not taking seriously both this question of meaning of what it means to belong in something and you're not taking, and if you're, and if you're at the same time, thinking about representation more broadly than just authenticity, that's the only way to make like a truly pluralist society work as a democracy. I guess that was my sort of like insight when we were talking about this stuff, Jason. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, and it goes to the question of what, what does representation mean? And, and, you know, one of the original books is, is Hannah, Hannah Pitkins. And she sort of, you know, breaks down what it can mean. Your lawyer can represent your interests. The, the basic breakdown, and then one we see today, is do we want people to act the way they think is right, selected by us to act the way they think is right, or do we want them to act the way that we instruct them to? And one of the debates is, you know, are you even a representative if you are just a vehicle for people to do exactly what they want? I mean, I think you've seen this with some of the Republicans who voted to impeach Trump. You've had various. This is a Josh Hawley argument that his constituency demanded this of him, that he would represent their concerns and channel those concerns on the national level. And remember that woman confronted Romney in the flip side of that at the airport, right? And she was just exactly. like, I elected you. You work for me. And that's not true either, technically. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. No, with several of the, the Republican parties that censured their representatives who basically opposed the January 6th or or did not vote to overturn the election or voted to impeach Trump or what have you, they basically said, you work for us. You, you, you're an expression of our will. They understood their represent. And, you know, there's a legitimate debate on to what extent uh, should representatives do that. But I think what Demir is talking about, it's, it's really a definitional, a definitional question. And, um, you know, it's one that's going, it's, it gets to the heart of what it means to be a, a democratic society. And, um, anyway, shoddy. Yeah. I don't know, shoddy. I mean, like, the, the, don't put this on me. No, I mean, I, I just think, you know, for me, anyway, these are, these are these sorts of things. And it's, I think it's a, it's a great time that Jason's passing through town so we can have this conversation because, uh, you know, I mean, we're, we're doing this sort of democracy stuff here in Wisdom of Crowds, like for the next six months. You know, on and off, not necessarily every episode will be doing this stuff. But to me, you know, it's, it's, it really is. It just cuts to that like core question. I, I think we're in a, in a, in a moment of intense ferment on this sort of stuff, but people aren't actually asking the core questions about what does this all mean, you know? And I don't know. I, if, if anything, um, I think, you know, one thing I, I want to do for the show notes of this is actually put like a bit of a reading list for some of this stuff because this, these questions are, you know, I mean, Jason's working on, a, on an article on this and, you know, we'll, we'll definitely publicize that when that happens. But it's, it's in general, this stuff is, I think, so important to ground our discussion when we take these sorts of uh, big steps. Now, again, I, you know, my, one of the, the, the counter arguments throughout all of this for me is that like, okay, so, uh, gerrymandering is quote unquote fixed, even though it won't be through like a nonpartisan commission, which won't be nonpartisan. Maybe the cost of that will be a certain level of belief in the legitimacy of the system as, you know, Republicans don't feel like, you know, that this is technocracy under the guise of nonpartisanship. Fine. You know, I mean, at the same time, I don't think this will actually fix the problems about uh, geographic representation. You know, filibuster goes away, uh, fine. You know, maybe then you just get more ping ponging on legislation that, you know, gets overturned. We'll get like a slightly stronger welfare state, maybe because minimum wages and other things will rise and those are very hard to repeal. But, you know, once majorities switch, you'll get all sorts of other crazy stuff happening. Not the end of the world ultimately, but it is, it is, I still think important at this moment right now to be really digging into these sort of first principle questions because there really are unexamined. There's so much stuff we think we know what the fuck we're, excuse me, talking about when, when we say, sorry, mom, shoddy's mom, (laughs) but like, uh, when we say, uh, you know, democracy representation, like we know what this means, but in fact we don't. We, don't, yeah. we really don't. And even as someone who like spends a lot of his time 
on democratic theory, I don't really have fully formed ideas on representation specifically. So I found myself over the course of this conversation, you know, really, really intrigued. And it's just a reminder that what we're doing with the democracy essays is so exciting. And it just, it, I can't wait to see, you know, what more we do with it. Um, since, uh, but anyway, I mean, uh, the, and for you guys who want to know more about the democracy essays, check out our previous episode where we talked more about what we want to do with that project. Um, but um, this is why I love wisdom of crowds. Well, I would, and I would just <laughs> say I think you know the the geographic question that we're that we're hitting on is is really key because as you said, you know, the the partisan breakdown of the Senate is relevant now, or Democrats have made it relevant, and a whole academic theory has bubbled up around the illegitimacy of the Senate precisely because we have managed to create coalitions that are that are so geographically defined. Um, and, you know, and that's part of, you know, and maybe, maybe that's transitory. Maybe that's a, a phase that we're going through. It has to do with the way that the, you know, in the last 30 years, our, our economy has, has grown and sent college people into the cities and urbanized and, you know, but also technology, I, I do think technology is a key part of this because Shadi's talking about, you know, voting on your phone. I mean, technology, which was seen as giving everyone a voice and democratizing, I think has increased demands for representation because it makes it easier to make your voice heard. Um, and it's um, increasing the demand for self-expression in a certain kind of way. And, you know, at the same time, as I've said, pa- in, in parallel, these technological trends have have changed our political landscape just because of the way the economy is shaped. I mean, Hillary Clinton talks about, I won most of the GDP of the U.S. because, um, you know, she won districts that produce, uh, I don't know what she said, two-thirds of the GDP or something because our GDP is produced in our cities. It didn't used to be. Um, you know, increasingly, we've we've concentrated our economic output in a certain place, and that overlaps with our, our political system in a, probably a destabilizing in a destabilizing way. That would be an interesting system where the president is dis- <laughs> the election of the president is decided by who gets the the largest share of GDP. That is an interesting idea. Yeah, probably a bad there. one though. A bad, I mean, I think that's called aristocracy, right? Also, in a, in a way. But here, let, let me let me just end on on one question, Jason, because I don't know. You know, uh, we haven't worked together in a while, so just sort of to to take your temperature. How do you feel about uh, I don't know what to call it. Um, American exceptionalism and the ability to, for it to sort of muddle through on this. Like now having worked at the journal and, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a different place and, you know, you, you're, you're exposed to a different, like, I think part of the country and, you know, a set of, of like concerns and, and, you know, much more so than at the American interest. How do you feel about like the resiliency of the whole system? Does this, do you, are you, are you concerned about like all the stuff we've talked about right now? Do you think, do you think basically, you know, uh, that that we muddle through on a lot of this stuff because the inherent both the you know breaks and built-in sort of blockages and the rest of this it'll work itself out and the polarization among the parties will be f- sort of forced to reckon with the hardness of the system are you do you feel like the system is flexible enough that some give in it will still allow it to work or are you are you legitimately concerned that it's breaking down i guess i'd have to say i'm pretty concerned i mean this the pace at which things seem to be going um is very is very fast and i i i can't see um i mean frankly as a as a conservative you know when i when i've expressed these two but views, you're a conservative i am <laughs> i've expressed these two views of uh you know counter majoritarianism i actually do identify more with this with this conservative view that um you know especially right now you know i've been i've been thinking about the the tech companies and um the way that the power that they have to impose political preferences through through content decisions without you know they're not elected of course they're they're based in a certain area they're not exposed to a certain part of the country and they and they're really aggressively trying to shape things and i think i really do see that as a democratic problem and i see the democrats equally convinced you know that they're the ones being uh, that they're being ruled illegitimately by a minority. I think both, really, we have large constituencies that feel that they are ruled by a minority, that feel that they're not represented adequately among the precincts of power. And 
The solution, which is to try to democratize the precincts of power, often seems like just trying to destroy them and, uh, you know, inherently revolutionary kind of feeling. So I think there's a lot of corrosive forces that our institutions are going to have to withstand that build on one another. And I certainly hope that they have the resiliency to do so. But it does feel to me, honestly, like a uh, precarious time. Well, that's a good (laughs) pessimistic note upon which to end. I think so. And uh, maybe just do like a little heads up for folks. Do it. That uh, we'll be doing a bonus subscribers only episode after this. And um, if you guys want to listen to that and just get more access to our paid content as we're ramping up what we do at Wisdom of Crowds, then please consider doing so at wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. This is a very exciting upcoming year for us. We mentioned the democracy essays. We got more in store for you guys. So thanks for your support and being part of our community. Demir, final final words of yeah. wisdom? No, no, no wisdom. Okay, guys. All right. And thanks, Jason, for joining us. Yeah, indeed. Finally. It's great to be on. Yeah, awesome. All right. Bye, guys. Bye.